Hi everyone, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience research podcast. Today we are talking to Marco Pagani from the Functional Imaging Laboratory of Istituto Italiano di Tecnologia in Italy and the <laughs> Autism Center of the Child Mind Institute in New York. Marco uses magnetic resonance imaging to study the functional architecture of the brain in both humans and rodents and the changes that occur in pathological states. Uh, John, we're, we're going to be talking to him mainly about autism today, I think, although who knows where it could go exactly. Welcome, Marco, and thanks for joining us. Hi, and thank you for having me here today. With us today, we have uh, Alice Botero, who's a local expert on cortical connectivity. Hi, Alice. Hello. And Nicole Wicha, our expert on cognition, language, and the brain. Hi, Nicole. Hi. And I'm your host, Charlie Wilson. So Marco, there's a pressing need to understand the causes of autism and to find treatments for it. And autism um, isn't just one thing, we're just one cause, and so we need to be looking for more than one treatment, probably. You can tell me when I'm wrong. <laughs> so I, I, com I, I, I completely agree okay. with you, of course. There's several different ways to try to categorize it. We could categorize it by behavioral phenotype. I'm sure there are people who do that. And, or by genetic ideology and uh, by measures of brain function. There mm. might be other ways. Yeah. But uh, the first question is whether all of these form clusters or they're just a, a continuous distribution of anything that we measure like that. And if they do form clusters, can we clarify things by creating categories, and then if we can create categories, which I hope we can, then do those categories map onto each other so we could find relationships between behavior, genetics, and brain measures, like the ones you measure using functional MRI. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, sir. These are, of course, uh, um, a very interesting question. And, um, you know, what I can say is that uh, uh, for like decades, especially uh, uh, neuropsychiatrists as, uh, have used uh, um, techniques like um, EEG or functional MRI or other neuroimaging techniques uh, to kind of uh, correlate what they see in, during their clinical practice. In, uh, uh, so like um, the behaviors of uh, children with autism and try to kind of link those behaviors um, to uh, brain systems okay so this was like this was like the the big challenge i think of the of the 90s over like early uh, 2000s and um, of course that that approach has been uh, extremely successful because it has enabled us uh, to characterize to link a little bit these two different scales of uh, of uh, of uh, of measurements so behavior and brain circuits however of course there are some uh, there was like, uh, it, it has now become evident that there are so, uh, lots of limitations in this approach. And one, one of these limitations is exactly what you said, that basically all these measurements relied on the idea that there is just uh, one single uh, form, one single uh, form of autism. And, um, and then, uh, you know, uh, what happened is that basically we had lots of neuroimaging studies applying measurements such as for example functional connectivity which is this measure 
measurement that can allow to uh, map how different brain region interacts. And people have applied this technique to better understand autism. However, what would so what, what was the what was the results of all these studies? Was that like it was a lots of heterogeneity, like like you said. So that basically, uh, what they were doing is basically mapping some uh, in each single study some subtype of uh, of autism, and they couldn't like replicate the findings across studies or across population. And so, um, you know, one idea that we have, that we had, but also other people, other laboratory have, in, uh, you know, are, are started to develop is that, you know, there is no, um, 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 you know, that all this heterogeneity was not just simple, simply because what we are mapping is like our technique are noisy or just because the methods that we use are not reproducible, but instead because we are like mapping some uh, heterogeneity that can have uh, uh, neurobiological uh, importance, relevance. And, um, you know, one idea that I think we have, uh, we developed during the time is that uh, most of these uh, variability, you know, autism, so it has a lot of variability in terms of, of behavior. So if you, if you talk uh, with a, a child a psychiatrist or a child psychologist, what they tell you is that basically each patient is different, is children with autism is, is different from any other. Right, so there is like this landscape, this very um, um, a, a, a spectrum of, of variability, and uh, you know also neuroimaging studies have kind of identified this variability at, at the brain uh, um, uh, system level. But also, you know, what we know so very well, what we learned out of uh, uh, genetic studies is that there is also lots of variability in terms of uh, of genetics. So because there is no one cause, as you said uh, exactly, there is no one cause for autism, but there are multiple. Okay, we know what we, what we know very well, and that there are some some of this variability can be explained also by environmental factors, like maybe neurodevelopmental trajectories. However, most of this variability in the causes of autism is because there are so many genes involved in the disorder, right? So there, 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 there are so many. And then you know what we are trying to do with our research is kind of find. Uh, some sub, you know, to use machine learning approaches, statistical, mathematical approaches to find these uh, subtypes of autism um, based on, uh, 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 based on, uh, by using fMRI. Why fMRI? Because, you know, autism is, is a brain disorder, so perhaps the secret to kind of dissect uh, the different brain circuits is like to use uh, uh, techniques that are uh, uh, sensitive to brain activity. And, uh, you know, what we found so far is that, uh, yes, we can use uh, brain imaging measurements, like, for example, fMRI, to identify clusters. So there are clusters, so there is no such a, a thing like a single signature of autism in the brain, but instead there are many, and these many can, like, but it's not like the case. So, so some people uh, think that, you know, that the, including us, think that the uh, autism is a spectrum, okay? So it's uh, it's like a continuous a sort of gradient of continuous variability, right, across subjects. But of course, you know, if you want to kind of simplify a little bit and make inference out of this data, what you can do is to identify these clusters and put like together patients that have similar um, uh, connectivity alterations. Okay. And this is basically the approach that has been used so far by <coughs> clinical neuroimagers. And they, 
and and it's been extremely successful because they show that you know there are like some subgroups of of autism there is no one signature there are multiple autism and in fact lots of people could stop to call it like autism but they call it, they call it autisms because because there is like multiple there are like multiple forms um, however, you know this, this this approach, you know, is extremely powerful, and it just it just brought us to a change, complete change of perspective in the way we 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 study, we understand, we, we you know, uh, we we approach the the the, the complexity of autism. Um, however, you know, one missing link here would be that, uh, yeah, of course, it's very hard to study uh, genetics in the humans, especially to have you know both um, data that you can use for your measurements with genetics and brain imaging because, because uh, oh, there, there are so many different forms of autism that these etiologies are extremely rare so it's very hard to find, you know, to study for example the brain circuits of specific uh, sub-genetically determined population of autism and so what we, you know, our, our idea, you know, our way, uh, which is uh, um, you know, to kind of um, um, uh, address these, all these questions would be, is, is like to use uh, animal models. So we use, we use the mouse, we use the mouse because it's, uh, the mouse is the quintess, we call it like the quintessential tool to study the genetics of autism. Because there's lots of different models that are available for autism. And then what we do is to use fMRI to, to map the brain circuits that are altered and are associated to that specific genetic etiology. And, and of course, that that's adds, adds a lot. Of course, it's, it's not an approach that is in contrast to what people do in the clinics, in the clinical setting. It's just a, a way that, you know, it's just a measurements that are aimed to complement these measurements and try to go a little bit uh, deeper to investigate the genetics. When, when thinking about clustering, and we're talking about finding clusters in some space, so in the genetic space. In the genetic When thinking space. about clustering, we think about a space that has a bunch of dimensions in it, and now we're looking for clusters in this high-dimensional space. So um, I'm kind of interested in how many dimensions there are. So there are many different genes that influence autism, are there are there single gene versions of autism? So there, there, there are genes you could say if you have a mutation in this gene, you do have autism. Mm -hmm. Or is it one of these things where you have a fifty percent risk if you have this? Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, it's it's yeah. Th thanks a lot for this question. Yeah, I think it's more like the second that you said. So basically, there is no such a thing like a gene that if it's mutated is like kind of is is, is you have like hundred percent of chances to get a diagnosis of autism. But we kind of speak, we kind of say um, that we ha that these genes that are identified to be related to be linked to autism, they are like risk genes. So basically, if you have a mutation in that gene, you are more likely to 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 get a diagnosis of autism. So it's not like one to one so correspondence. To make, a, to make a mass model yeah. of autism, mm -hmm. right? So I was going to ask that because there's, there's something that's been very curious to me about when designing mouse models, when we don't actually know what the genes are. Um, some people have approached this by trying to model the behavior. Mm -hmm. um, in your case, it doesn't look like you're modeling the behavior. You're picking a gene that's 
that mm-hmm. does what? That does what? Like, what is the? What are you mapping the assumption of that this is a model of autism? Um, yeah. Based on your- yeah, I see. So first of all, yeah, sometimes uh, um, uh, scientists, including me, we talk, we we refer to these mice as like mouse models of mm-hmm. autism. Of course, autism is something that is for humans. So there is no, you know, there is no autism for in the in the mouse. However, you know what you can do. You can you can use uh, in, uh, genetic engineering to build these mice, like a mouse that have um, that that carries the same mutations that of in the gene that has been associated to autism in humans. So this is what you can do with. The, so you are not like studying with the mouse. You are not studying autism, but you are studying what that specific mutation does in terms of brain circuits or whatever you are interested. Um, that you know, and you kind of uh, use these measurements to cross compare with the, with the, um, with the, with the, with the, with the clinics. So, so you don't require the mouse to actually have autism. Yeah. So they, <laughs> they, but you can you you can do you you can you can yeah you can measure then uh, behaviors also in, uh, um, in uh, in the mouse of course a mouse is is is, is, is um, uh, they are like um, and actually they are very good models also for behaviors because like mice are very social. So and of course, social behaviors is what is uh, uh, is one of the core uh, uh, impairments in uh, clinical autism. So, like uh, the mouse model is ac- absolutely a great model to study also autism behaviorally. Of course, the repertoire of of mice behavior is much more narrow as compared to you know the of of, of the social behaviors that uh, uh, humans can have. But I think it's still a very valuable. Uh, uh, model. Um, so I, I think that the methodologies that you're using, like linking uh, the functional brain activity networks uh, to the specific genes, especially the doing that co-correlation mapping of uh, the genes that are present. So, you, so you're actually starting with a gene that's been suggested in the human literature, looking at it in the an- animal, and mm-hmm. then correlating it back to mm-hmm. functional neural networks of some sort. Um, and behavior. And, beha- and behavior, mm-hmm. um, but it's just one gene. And so, how? What do you? How do you? Th- I mean, it's got to be really frustrating as someone who understands the complexity of autism um, to have one model of maybe something that has something to do with autism, right? Like you know, it's connected in some way. But mm-hmm. when you end up with your network of brain regions that is involved, and you're saying this is the network that is deficient in autism. Mm-hmm. How how do you feel as a researcher see, talking about that and, and, and your ability to, to sort of um, generalize that to other aspects of the spectrum? Mm-hmm. Like how much is that really autism or just that particular behavior or that particular gene? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, this is an amazing question. So first of all, I, will, I would like to get a step back as, on your question that you, that you asked before. So how, how do we select these genes? And um, so, why exactly that gene and not another one? And uh, and this is th- that that was also an incredible question. Thank you for asking. And basically, so that 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 comes from the human literature. And usually, in human literature, they have these uh, 
very large scale uh, genetic study they call it like GWOS and so that's that's a way that people basically use they have these very large populations and they do like genetical screening and they can kind of filter out the some genes that has been uh, that can as are associated to autism and also the other the other way is that there in human genetics people use uh, family studies okay so basically the people follow uh, you know, scientists follow these families where there is at least one case of autism and they kind of see whether how you know that that mutation is present for example in the children with with autism and that and if it's that was not present in the in the genitors like in the so that you know would point at the possible link of that gene with the uh, mutation in that gene with uh, with autism so what we do is basically is just to generate a mouse model with that one so when, when we have a stronger candidate and there are also online there are also foundations that uh, of course are um, kind of uh, uh, generate uh, uh, curated data set so you can consult this data set and and uh, and you know have get to know whether that gene has been uh, you know in the literature in the scientific literature has been highly involved uh, uh, highly linked so at which degree that gene was linked with the uh, with autism based on these uh, large-scale studies so you have the advantage I guess because there's a huge number of mouse models that have been Generated using this genetic approach, mm -hmm. like I looked it up. There's today. There's 1,353. <laughs> there's lots of work for us. So, but it does mean that you get to take your pick. You don't have to pick the ones that are most weakly connected to yeah. autism. You can pick the ones that you think have the most strong connection. Mm -hmm. uh, so, is is that what you do? You like search through them and find one that isn't a mouse that isn't like 50 percent likely to be. Mm -hmm. Autistic, but yeah. it's more like ninety percent. Yeah. So yeah. Sorry, and also you choose your models also based on the phenotype of your, of the the, the mouse model that's been generated. So let's say that this mutation has a fifty percent incidence in uh, this population and mm -hmm. is correlated strongly correlated with humans. Then uh, the mouse has been generated and characterized because that's the first thing that you do when you generate a model. Mm -hmm. And uh, if this mouse, would you say if this mouse shows some behavioral or uh, usually the behavior is the first thing or some gross abnormalities that are correlated you know uh, would you consider this more than another one that shows less or weakest behavioral mm -hmm. um, phenotype so yes yeah, so of course yeah, yeah thanks all categories right for your yeah. work you Th can't be studying thousands of different yeah. no no i will need like uh, 10 lives like you know there's so much time to characterize them all and also you know there are like the, the 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 number that you said is like already overwhelming so there are like so many uh, genes that could be involved in uh, in in autism and we're counting so basically every time i search uh, the scientific literature or just you know i'm very active on twitter mm -hmm. every time i wake up and i have my cup of coffee there is like a new gene has been involved in autism so like you know there was a certain point when i when i started in Italy, uh, the Italian Institute of Technology with with uh, with Alessandro Godzi, Godzi, which is my, you know, was the, was the senior scientist that was working with the, with in Italy. You know, we basically knew all the all these genes by by name mm -hmm. because they were like, and it was only ten years ago. 
now you know there are so many mm. that uh, you know it would be impossible to to remember even the name only the name for 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 all all of them right so yeah um so how to prioritize when which, which gene to investigate that's that's a, an, an amazing question of course everything you said it's a, mm -hmm. it's something that we factor in so uh, behavior and uh, so usually um, um uh, what the, what we also do, what we also take into account is that so we really want so our, our one of our main interest is that uh, uh, is is to find some some correlate with uh, with MRI or with fMRI. Uh, so basically, one one of the uh, one of our um, uh, you know um, um, things that we're investing the most is is you know to use to use fMRI and to use MRI on these mouse models because we really want to use a technique that, that is uh, translational across pieces so in the sense that of course mri and fmri is exactly the same one that has been that can can be used in the humans and you know the, the what we are very interesting is to see whether we can kind of reconstitute the same abnormality the same atypicality that we, in the mouse model the same that we we see in the in the in the in the humans but then the next step if if we are able to show that then the next step is try to go um, not myself because I'm not a molecular um, um, biologist but we I work and we work with a lot of uh, biologists and of course then the question the next question is well okay great so we, we were able to reconstitute the same um, um, the same MRI phenotype the same MRI alteration but then now what's next so so one point is that we uh, you know we want to use this mouse because you know to use all the you know the beautiful neuroscience techniques that you can use on the mouse and uh, deep, and deeply characterize at for example at the what so um, what happens at the micro circuits what happens at the cellular level so these are all all, all questions that are uh, that we are also interested in. So like when we kind of try to prioritize one gene instead of another is um, is because, you know, perhaps uh, that specific mouse model has been uh, has been uh, identified a, a specific cellular signature, maybe related to number of neurons or number of synapses or like uh, uh, all these basic cellular features so that we can kind of try to, to link our functional measurements at the macro scale that we can do with fMRI, and uh, uh, the you know these uh, these uh, these all the measurements are made that are made uh, at the at the at the cellular level. So this is also so having also a deep biological characterization of that specific gene in the specific mouse model. That's also something that uh, mm -hmm. uh, we also factor in together, of course, that uh, with the with the with the behavior, which is always you know one of the first thing that you are that you are that you want to know about that that mouse model. So the genes cluster in the in sort of functional space of their own. So some genes are all related to each other. They're part of some pathway, for example. And so you could say, well, these genes are, ought to be similar in effect. Mm -hmm. If the mutation in any of them is like messing up this one pathway, then all of them will be approximately the same kind of thing. So if you collapse the enormous number of genes down uh, along functional lines like that, mm -hmm. you end up with a lot smaller number of yeah. pathways that you're thinking about and one of them that you focus on is the mTOR mm -hmm. pathway and I guess not you just you but that's been a focus of lots of people who are working on autism and one of the attractions of that is the observation of this 
cellular change, which is an overabundance of dendritic spines. So uh, is that, that's the kind of clue that you're looking for. Is that, how common is that? Is that just for these mouse lines with the mTOR pathway mm -hmm. mutations, or is that, affect, uh, is that something that's seen across, across many different uh, cellular pathway. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so for now, so basically, I think that lots of of the inspiration of uh, of uh, of of the research that we do at uh, at the IIT starts also from uh, from um, from clinical data. Okay. So basically, what we are trying to do, you know, without we do all our work with the mouse models is like okay, we use the mouse as the tool, but of course the question is always clinical. So what we are trying to do is like to make our research as translatable as possible, in order also to um, to um, to speed up the the, the, the piece of, of discovery in 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 the humans. So for now, we focused mainly on the. Not mainly, but you know, at least for my research, I focused a lot on the, on the mTOR pathway, because the mTOR pathway has been found to be disrupted, actually hyperactive, in uh, in uh, in uh, in uh, postpartum brains of uh, of children with autism, and so that's why we were interested also to uh, to study a mouse model with the same uh, uh, mTOR hyperactivity. And as you said, like the mTOR pathway is extremely complex. So if you look at the textbooks, there are like so many genes, so many, so many interactions involved. And among all of them, we used uh, once, but we, you know, we, we we investigated a specific mouse model. And this specific mouse model is the TSC2. And why why the TSC2? Because because this TSC2 mouse model has been shown to clearly reconstitute this spine, this uh, synaptic. Uh, um, uh, this uh, surplus uh, that it was exactly the same that was found in the in the human literature, right? So we have always this parallel between uh, the species, and in fact, this is like I think one, we we've been one of the first lab who invested a lot in doing cross species study. So <coughs> where when people uh, when most of the people think that fMRI is something or MRI in general can be do can be done only in humans said so we say no listen we can you know we can leverage the power of these cross species studies and um, and uh, and and you know use it and couple it with the power that uh, mouse models can give uh, to really advance uh, um, the, the, our understanding on the origin and significance of the functional connectivity alterations in autism. So, dendritic spines on cortical pyramidal cells, that's the observation, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea is that every dendritic spine gets an excitatory synapse. I guess that, I mean, that's definitely been shown in under sort of normal mm -hmm. circumstances, and mm -hmm. I think it's probably reasonable to assume that that's true in this case too. And so that means if there's more spines, there's more excitatory synapses on mm -hmm. cortical mm -hmm. pyramidal cells. Mm -hmm. um, so there should be more excitation in mm -hmm. cortical pyramidal cells, and mm -hmm. that somehow that mm -hmm. could be linked to changes in the connectivity that you see with your... So I'm just sort of trying to, mm -hmm. to see how this all fits together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, uh, yes, that's for sure. And in fact, another common observations that we have on these mouse models is that they are, 
they these these mouse models are um, um, epileptic so they do have uh, epilepsy and this of course is is related to the to the higher um, excitability that you that, that you mentioned so yes um, that, and also that, that synchronization, could, right? Which is what you're measuring in your data. Exactly, and also hypersynchronization. And also hypersynchronization, hypercoupling uh, um, across brain regions. So that's uh, so both number of of synapses, but also the fact that these synapses are excitatory. Of course, it's uh, could be uh, you know are two factors crucial that can that can crucially explain the, all the hyperconnectivity that we measure. Um, at uh, at the um, at the network level, on the other side, uh, um, you know, I think that until a few years ago, um, there were you know there people invested a lot and, and people are still investing a lot in understanding whether um, you know the, the the importance of, uh, of for example measurements of E2I imbalance uh, are in the are are uh, and disruptions in you know in, in E2I balance can can lead to some uh, um, uh, disruptions in in in, in networks uh, of uh, uh, in, in in people with uh, with ASD. So nowadays there are like more and more studies that, however, are kind of like putting uh, the, all these findings in a different light. In the sense that you know, people now, um, and there are like many publications that are, um, and, and especially a couple very influential, that instead shows that you know these E2I imbalances are not like a cause. So there, this is not like the, the the initial cause of autism, but instead are like a ring in the chain. So basically, something in the mid, you know, maybe is more maybe an effect rather than yeah, maybe an effect so instead E2, of a E2, cause. I should say something about what E2I. Mm -hmm. Uh, balance means right, uh -huh. excitatory yeah. and inhibitory. Oh no, yes, yeah. Sorry, excitatory and inhibitory. Yeah, and, uh, and so that means that you could get have more excitation if you had more inhibition. You'd end up in kind of the same place mm -hmm. you started. Uh, yeah. So we wouldn't necessarily have to have more activity every time we get more excitatory synapses. So how do how do you evaluate that? I mean, what What's the test for for that? I know that's really not something that comes straight out of MRI. Mm -hmm. No, very easily. No, that's not. That's not. But there are like lots of studies that now are. You know, there is like lots of interested because now there are like available lots of manipulations that can enable to change these. Uh, excitatory and inhibitory uh, ratio there are for example there are like sort of manipulations that allows you to excite brain regions or the inhibit the activity of brain regions and of course what is very interesting that you do with fMRI is to map the you know what 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 are the effects of these uh, of these uh, imbalances in terms of uh, at the macro at the large scale level at the level of, of, of fMRI do something like suppress inhibition in some cortical area or enhance excitation in some mm -hmm. cortical area and then see what that does mm -hmm. to the resting state mm -hmm. connectivity exactly it can be global with drugs so it can be Local with specific manipulation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you do optogenetics with and fMRI? Yeah. yeah, you can do optofMRI. You can do chemo fMRI. So you can couple uh, chemogenetics with fMRI. And there are already in the literature beautiful uh, examples. And so also with um, yeah by using ph uh, mm -hmm. pharmacol ph uh, drugs.
Yeah, that was the starting point. I first blanket with drugs so that can kind of act on one population or another. And now the field is more going through opto fMRI mm -hmm. and uh, chemo fMRI. Yeah. To be more specific on cell type, that's also a beauty of the mouse model that you can select one cell type across others. Do we have do we know something because of that, or do we have could we draw some kind of conclusion about the work that's been done with that, or is that just getting started? Mm. So, so it's I think it's moving. It's it's a field that is moving very fast, and um, so results. Uh, um, so there, so there is, you know, there is there is there is already you know some some very results. There is there are not like convergences yet, but what I can say that there are also some. Uh, uh, unexpected results that people would not, you know, uh, hypothesize this way, but it turned out to be like this. And again, I don't want to do like self-promotion of, of the lab uh, of the Italian okay. Institute of Techno Technology where I come, but you know, <laughs> it has been published uh, uh, very, very recently, this paper by a PhD student of the lab and saying that, you know, they were, uh, they were switching off entirely the prefrontal cortex of, of, of the mouse brain and of course what, you what, what most of the people would expect after switching off a brain region is people would expect that connectivity would decrease, right? Because, because you know, there is like less activity, so less connectivity. Uh, instead, what we found is exactly the, the, the opposite, right? And uh, uh, what happened, uh, you know, what we found is that when you switch off like these very uh, crucial in integrative brain regions like the prefrontal cortex, you instead get higher connectivity, functional connectivity. And I think that this is very, you know, these results could be extremely important, especially in the interpretation of the results, because most of the times, especially, um, um, uh, you know, we are prone to see you. So when you, especially in autism, when you see there is like hyperconnect, functional hyperconnectivity in some subpopulation of autism, you you kind of you are tempted to conclude that there is like more uh, more activity, right? And so more connectivity. Instead, could be also like all the way around, okay? So and I think that and I think that here, and of course, this this was this was modulation on yeah. on on new on on on. Uh, on uh, on all neurons, but of course, uh, if we really want to know better the story and have a more full picture, we perhaps have to go with more targeted uh, cell type uh, uh, studies with cell type specificity. So this, that's that's one one way to go to better dissect this. Right, we're going to end up not just learning something about autism, but learning something about what we're really measuring yeah. in the. Uh, and these functional connectivities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the origin mm -hmm. of, of this phenomenon. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Marco. Thank you very much for Jim having me here. Nicole, uh, this great. has been Neuroscientist Talk Show. Mm -hmm.